Thanks, Caro. Uh, great to have that uh, part of the Bible uh, open. Uh, chapter 9 is where we're going to camp out, spend most of our time. So if you can, if you can open that up, um, that'd be superb. Now, we're continuing our series in Romans. And we've got there in a roundabout way. I think last week you had Stuart come and speak to you on chapter 12. Is that right? Uh, this morning in the morning service, uh, Luke tried to explain it was like getting the Star Wars episodes in, uh, in right order. Let the reader understand. If you don't, that's fine. Um, but we're going to go from, uh, from chapter 12 back to chapter 9. And I know that sounds strange, so just bear with us. Essentially, I was away on holidays last week, and I didn't want to give Stu uh, chapters 9 to 11 as a hospital pass. So I've got them. Uh, and so that's why, um, that's why we're doing them in this order. But we're, we're doing something um, special tonight. We're going to have a look at um, chapter 9 in particular. And I, I want to tell you, I guess, that it's going to be a little bit of a stretch for us. Okay, We're going to have to work a little bit hard. Now, it's Sunday night. You're here, so you've done well. But it's going to be a bit of a stretch. And the reason for that is because we're going to look at the idea of predestination. Yep, that's good. Uh, excellent. Uh, it's also known as election and not the one that Tim just prayed for down in Melbourne. That's not what we're talking about. It's God's choice. We're going to talk about God choosing people tonight. And uh, if you're wondering what is predestination, predestination is, uh, in Christian theology, is the doctrine that God has ordained all that will happen, especially with regard to the salvation of some and not others. And this is particularly unpacked by Calvin and Augustine, but they don't, there's no, those names don't really matter. What I'm going to do is pray for us that we might find this a good and encouraging time. What do you reckon? Has anyone got enough faith for that? Okay, I'll hear your amens at the end. Is that okay? Uh, let's pray to God. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's living and active. And we thank you that Paul wrote this 9th, 10th, and 11th chapter uh, of this letter to the Romans. Help us tonight to understand it. Be present by your spirit to reveal its truth to our hearts. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Good. Yeah, I'm hearing your strong amens. That's really good. Okay, so how do we get here? Not to, uh, not, the, not the explanation I've just done, but how do we get to chapter 9? Well, that's not very difficult. We got to chapter 9 by going through chapter... Okay, you guys are with me tonight. You're going to work really hard. Uh, that's right. We went, through, uh, we went through chapter 8. Chapter 8 precedes chapter 9. You'll be surprised to know. And in chapter 8, we actually see this idea of predestination. It comes up in a really beautiful way. Just look before me, uh, before the passage there, in chapter 8. You'll see it verse 28. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. And everyone went, it's fantastic, right? It's great news. It says that God loves us enough that he called us. He didn't just call us, he justified us. That means make us right before God. And then his plan is to glorify us, is to raise us up so that we'll be spotless in his presence. And it says here, God's working all things together for the good of those who love him. That's connected to predestination. Now, isn't it an encouragement and Isabel shared a little bit on this, isn't it an encouragement to know when everything falls apart that God's good plan is still working? Isn't it an encouragement? Now, that encouragement comes from 
predestination, the fact that God's in charge, he's over everything. And so here it is being used as a point of celebration, of encouragement to our hearts. And so Paul follows on and almost turns into a hymn at the end of chapter 8, and he tells us in verse 39, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now guys, that's a high point. That is a really beautiful statement about the glory and the goodness of God. So, great. And then we get to chapter 9. Why does chapter 9 start the way it does? Well, it starts that way because Paul's exulting in the goodness of predestination, and then he looks around him in the world and goes, everyone doesn't have it at the moment. Everybody doesn't know this great thing that we've found. And so as he looks around, he says, well, everyone isn't on board yet. And it's not just everyone. The burden for Paul particularly is that his own people aren't saved in great numbers yet. Have a listen to him. We're looking at Romans chapter 9, verse 1. He says, I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. What, what he's essentially saying here is, I could, I, I, I could imagine, I could almost wish that I wasn't a follower of Jesus if it would mean that others would receive that benefit. Now, for me, that's a problem. It's a problem because I'm not sure I can match Paul's prayer. He's so passionate. I think I can't match Paul's prayer for two reasons. First of all, I'm not sure I have the same love of Jesus as Paul, by which I mean Paul thinks Jesus is so good, so excellent, that knowing him is the high point of, of being a human being. He's so into Jesus that he says, I would give it up that my people could taste it. Do you see? You have to love Jesus so much that you'd be prepared to say, I'd give it up because it's so good. A little bit, it's a little bit non-logical, but do you get it? He says, Jesus is so amazing, so wonderful. And so I think maybe I can't match him because I don't love Jesus as much as him. But there's a second reason I don't think I can match him. I think I'm not sure I love people as well as he does. What Paul's essentially saying here is, I'd give up my salvation. I could wish that I'd give up my salvation because I love the Jews, my people, so much that I'd love to have all of them in, even if it costs me my salvation. He doesn't wish his salvation away. He's just saying it's so precious and his love for his people is so big that it would almost be worth making that exchange. Now, I'm inspired by Paul's passion, but I'm not sure I can match uh, match him in his prayer. He goes on after having said how the Jews who don't yet have the goodness of God seem to be missing out. H- have a look at uh, the rest of verse 4 there. He says, theirs is the adoption to sonship, theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship. He says all of those things and they haven't got Jesus yet. They haven't got Jesus yet. Now he's about to go on and say God has a plan God has a plan. And it's a bit like this picture up here. I don't know if you can see. There's one tree. Can you see it up there? One tree that's not like the others. One tree that's standing out. There's a whole forest there. And there's a little bit that's different. In the Bible, the little bit that's different is called the remnant. 
a small part of the larger whole. And I want you to see how that works here in verses 6 to 7. See, it could be the Jews have everything going for them, but they're not getting Jesus. Maybe you could think that God's plan had failed. So have a look at verse 6. He says, it's not as though God's word had failed. For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor, because they are his descendants, are all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac your offspring will be reckoned. Now, guys, I know it's, it's the evening, and I reckon that that didn't make very much sense. Let me just put it up there, and I'll work with you. It said there, not all descended from Israel are Israel. What does it mean? There's a guy in the Bible called Jacob. Have you heard of him? Jacob? Do you know how many children Jacob had? At least 13, that's good. Famously, he had how many sons, Alex? Okay, good, that's right. There's a whole lot of other children that are floating around the place, but we'll go with 12. Why do we know that he had 12? Because the 12 sons of Jacob become the 12 what? The 12 tribes of Israel. Now, the 12 tribes of Israel. How do we get Jacob having children that are called the children of Israel, the disciples, the, what's going on there? Jacob gets another name. He gets called Israel. Jacob gets called Israel, and his descendants become the nation of, okay. So here's the thing when it says here, not all descended from Israel are Israel. Now, but what does that mean? What it's saying is, in the whole nation of Israel, only a subset, only a remnant are faithful. So not all the people who are in the nation of Israel are truly living God's way as the true Israel. That took a lot of work, didn't it? So not all descended from Israel are Israel. And we see in the Bible that God is always working with this subset, with this remnant. And he's going to show us that he does that in a way that's very unusual. He picks the unexpected ones. If we go to Abraham, Father Abraham, had many sons, and two of them are his firstborn and his secondborn. His firstborn son, Abraham's firstborn son, we could turn it into a quiz, but we won't. Don't forget, you can ask me questions at the end. Um, The firstborn, sorry? Ishmael, correct. Okay, so Ishmael is the firstborn. He is born to Abraham's slave, a woman called Hagar. Okay, he's the firstborn. Then there's another son born to Sarah, his wife, whose name is Isaac. Fantastic. You guys are doing great. Now, if we're looking at this, who gets the inheritance? Okay, right. Both those answers are good, but some of you are playing along from your biblical knowledge. Let's just rub that out for a second. If you're looking at who gets the inheritance, who gets the inheritance? The, The firstborn. Okay, so we would expect that the the firstborn, Ishmael, should get the inheritance. But it's not the case. The scripture says here, have a look with me at verses 7 to 9. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this is how the promise was stated, at the appointed time I will return and Sarah will have a son. So, Bizarrely, surprisingly, God chooses to work with the second son because he's the child of promise. Cool. Let's go to his sons. So let's go to Isaac's sons. Isaac had two sons and they were 
Esau and Jacob. Okay, very good. Esau and Jacob. Now, Esau is famous in the Bible for being what? Hairy. It's fantastic. It's just a weird quirk of the Bible. We're told Esau was a very hairy man. Now, if you're going to be remembered for all eternity, being remembered for being hairy is pretty cool, I think. Anyway, here he is. There's Esau. Now, who is the firstborn son? Esau. So who should inherit? Okay, except that's not what happens. And in the story we see, have a look at at verses 10 to 13. Not only that, but Rebekah's children, verse 10, were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So who's the chosen one? Jacob. Jacob is the chosen one. Jacob is the one who receives the blessing. Now he does it in a terribly twisted way, but he gets the blessing. And the second one becomes the one who has the blessing. That's strange. But if you're paying attention, and I know you are, I think this next question caught your attention, didn't it? Wait, what was that about the hating part? Have a look with me in the Bible. It's right there. In verse 13, it says, Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Before they were born, God said, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What's going on there? Well, first thing to note is that the words, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated, came from Malachi, a quote from Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament. And in Malachi chapter 1, I'm sure you're all very familiar with it. In Malachi chapter 1, Uh, It starts off with a question. It says, A prophecy, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. He's, He's speaking to Israel. He says, Israel, I have loved you. But Israel asks, how have you loved us? God's response, was not Esau Jacob's brother? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated And I've turned his hill country into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. What's happening in this quote is, basically, the two boys have turned into nations. The nation of Israel is going, God, do you love us? And God says, I love you, and I have not loved Esau. Esau, I have hated. The nation of Israel has, uh, uh, the nation of Ish, where have I gone? Esau, thank you, I got Ishmael and then Israel, and I got really confused. The nation connected to Esau is not loved by God. They have received a, a, a land that has turned into a desert. So here, the quote that I've hated Esau is actually talking about them nationally. But we see that the man Esau actually received blessings, even though it says here that God hated him. So it must be talking about the nation there in the sense that in in Genesis 36, we're told that he has so great possessions that he couldn't hang out with his brother anymore. God multiplied his stock. And so he is blessed personally. But the passage is telling us something else. It's being used... Jacob and Esau are being used to tell us that God chooses people individually. He does actually do this. Before they were born, God says, you are my man, and to the other one, you are not. Now, that's the point of this passage, and I think we need to acknowledge that that is a really hard truth. God choosing one and not the other. 
But the reason it's so hard is because we forget about the fall. Now, do you guys know what the fall is when I talk to you about the fall? Adam and Eve are in the garden. God gives them what? God gives them everything. And they say to God, thanks very much. We want it all for ourselves and we don't want you. We want to run our own lives our own way. And God says, well, there's judgment for that. Judgment for you and judgment for all your descendants. And we follow along with our parents, don't we? Adam and Eve. We reject God. We follow our own way. And we deserve the same punishment they did. The default position for all humanity is we don't deserve God's grace. Are you with me? We've all done the rebellious thing. And so here's the amazing point. Election, grace, choice is mercy shown to the undeserving. We tip it on its head and we say it's badness coming to people. Not the case. We get exactly what we deserve unless God chooses us and shows us mercy. Do you see? So the fall means that we are all undeserving and means that when God chooses anyone, it's mercy. Now, there's a question that logically follows from this, however, if God's doing the choosing. And I'm sure it's popped into your head. If God is choosing people before they're born, you want to say, is God unjust? Is that right? Right, good. Of course it is. That's what you're thinking. Have a look. It's actually in the passage here. Have a look at me, with me at verse 14. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Paul doesn't leave us in suspense. He says this, not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. So the answer is, is God unjust? No, God is the one who shows mercy and compassion wherever he chooses. That's what it says in the Bible. And in fact, he uses an example to show us this. He says, well, I've actually used somebody for my purposes before. Think of Pharaoh. It says in verses 17 to 18, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Pharaoh, the one who appeared to be the most powerful in all the world, was actually under the authority of the sovereign God. God uses Pharaoh for his purposes and for his glory. Now, I'm just back from holidays, uh, which was great. And we did a little bit of surfing at Noosa Beach. Has anyone been to Noosa Beach? Big waves, right? Really? No, I was joking. It's, it's tiny little waves. Very easy, nice and calm. It's a great place to learn to surf. Go around the other side and you get out the open ocean, pounding waves. Does anyone like big surf? Some, some of you do. You do. Is that right? I don't like it. It was fun. I was in there with, um, with Ruby and Isaac. Uh, when the, well, I was talking with Isaac. When the waves come through, smash, and my little boy's you know, 15 metres behind me, swims back again. <laughs> when we're in big surf, when it's really powerful, powerful for us as adults, there's a sense in which we just feel that we're just swept away. And I think it's a very visceral feeling when you're in the, in the surf and you get hammered. Like you, you really know that you're not very powerful at all. Ha, have a look with me at, uh, at verse 19 here. Take, keep that thought 
Keep that thought in mind. In verse 19, one of you will say this to me, that the Bible is so good, it anticipates our objections to what we're hearing. One of you will say to me, why then does God still blame us for who is able to resist his will? If God is powerful, if God is choosing, then how can he blame us? How can God blame us? Now, at that point, you and I want to sit down with God and say, God, are you being fair? Are you really being fair? And the answer in the scripture will shock us because it's quite blunt. Have a look with me at verses 20 to 21. The question is, is God unjust? But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? See, here's the answer. The answer is to say, God isn't your peer. God isn't your best friend in the sense of, we're just the same God, let's sit down and have a coffee and let me tell you why you're wrong. The answer in scripture is, God is the potter and you are the clay. Now, that's blunt, isn't it? That doesn't, doesn't work in our world very well. But that's what it says here. And I think the challenge for us is to go, do we see ourselves as pottery? And more than that, do we recognize the potter's rights? That the potter, the one in charge, can take the lump of clay and do whatever he wants with it and be right because he's the potter and we're the clay. Feels hard, doesn't it? But there it is. The first response is to say, you are clay and he is the potter. The second response is to look at history and see what God is doing. Have a look at verse 22. What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory? Even us, whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also for the Gentiles. What it's saying here is, what if God was patient? What if God used time to bring more glory to himself for the people that he is saving? I thought of Israel as a good example. Now, do you guys know the history? Go and do PTC if you don't. I'm sure these guys would love to help you understand. But here's the thing. God had people in Egypt They went down there because there was a famine and they grew bigger and bigger and bigger. Now, God could have just saved them out when they were one family. He could have taken them out of Egypt when they were one family. How much glory would have gone to God at that point? Not very much. Does anyone know how long they're in Egypt for? 400 years. For 400 years, that family grew and grew and grew and grew until it became a nation until it was enslaved by the most powerful kingdom in the world. And then what did God do? Drew them out. And in drawing them out, by being patient, by being patient, he gave more glory to himself as the God who saved the nation of Israel out of Egypt than if he had done it earlier. Do you see? What if God was patiently waiting to show his wrath in order to show his glory to the objects of his mercy? Do you see how that works? Go God. There is patience and there is long-suffering as a canvas for the glory of God. 
Well, there was someone, however, who said to God, actually, I'd really like you to sit down and explain yourself to me. Do you remember a guy called Job? He's got his own book in the Bible. If you haven't read it, it's worth reading. He's a guy who was doing everything right and everything bad happened to him. Lost his family, lost his health, lost his wealth. Everything was taken away from him. He was having a very bad day. And he said to God, God, I want you to tell me why you've done this to me. Come and meet me. Come and meet me. I want to plead my case before you. And God says to him, would you condemn me to justify yourself? What does this mean? Are we going to say, God, I don't like the way you're running the universe. I'm more moral than you. If you're in God's position, you're doing it wrong, essentially. That's what we're trying to say. And so God speaks to this man. In Job chapter 40, he says this, Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. Brace yourself like a man, and I will question you, and you shall answer me. Would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? It's pretty striking words, isn't it? God says, come here. I've got some questions for you. Are you going to make yourself look good and make me look bad? Then God proceeds to ask him a lot of questions to do with, has he ever caused the sunrise to come? Does he know where the snow is stored? Has he seen where crocodiles give birth and all sorts of other exciting things like that? Read it. It's great, great. Job. But he says to him, do you, have you, do you, have you, do you, have you, do you? And the answer is no. I recognize I'm not God. And so he says in Job chapter 42, then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You ask, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Then he says this, surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. Job's answer, having demanded an audience with God, in the end is to say, God, you're God, and I am not. There's a wonderful humility in that. Paul moves from talking about the wonders of the goodness of God back to his idea of the, of the question, why haven't the Jews been saved yet? And he says in, uh, in chapter th- uh, 9, verse 30, what then shall we say? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith, but that the people of Israel who pursued the law as a way of righteousness have not attained their goal. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. Here's the thing. The people of Israel thought that they were getting right with God by obeying the law. They were working really hard at it. But they failed, and then they failed, and then they failed, and then they failed. And they did it for hundreds and hundreds of years. They failed again and again and again. And here, Paul's saying to his own people, you're going the wrong way. You're seeking how to be right with God the wrong way. Why? Because they pursued the way to be right with God, not by faith, but as if it were by works. And then he says this weird thing, they stumbled over the stumbling stone. And you're like, right, all the Jews tripped over. Is that what happened? The answer is no, that isn't what happened. What God said is he sent Jesus to save people through this, through the cross. He sent people to be saved 
through the cross. And for the Jews, they looked at it and said, Jesus lost, he was humiliated. How can that be the way to be saved? How can that be the way to be saved? And God says, you'll be saved by trusting what Jesus has done by faith. I want to give you the way to be right with God. For free, trust Jesus. And the Jews go, that doesn't sound fair. It doesn't sound right. It doesn't sound like something I can work really hard to achieve. And so they stumbled over the stumbling stone. Grace by faith was too hard for the Jewish people to accept. We're going to see one last thing about the Jews, but before we see that, I want to talk to you about 737s. Because it's fun. This is, uh, this is the place where 737s get put together. They get, uh, this is in Washington, um, in the United States. It's the biggest covered building in the world, a million square feet or something like that. Amazing. They build, do you know how many 737s they build a month? You ready for this number? Get ready. 52. 52 whole 737s fly out of there every single month. 52. Extraordinary, right? There's a great little tube I just put up on our, um, on our internal Facebook page if you want to see how. Really fun. But here's the point. It takes a lot of effort to make a 737, even though they do it really quickly. What is the 737 for? What is the purpose of all this wiring, all this aluminium? What's it for? What does it want to do? How will you know when you've made a 737? What will it do? What will be the fulfillment of a 737? Thank you, Annabelle. That's exactly right. It'll fly. When it takes off, it's fulfilling its purpose. That is the end goal of all of this hard work is this beautiful point where it takes off and flies, right? I want, I want you to see that God had a goal for the Jewish people, a fulfillment of what they had been doing, and they were missing it. He says in chapter 10, Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer, for God, prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. I can testify about them that they're zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge, since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own. They did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the culmination of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. It was the purpose. It was the goal. It was the hope. It was the direction pointing people to Jesus so that everyone would be able to trust in him. The whole purpose for Israel was to find their hope in Jesus. All right. Predestination. Jesus. What are some reflections? Three reflections and then a couple of questions. Some reflections. First of all, what do we learn about God from the passage we've looked at today? Number one, God is truly sovereign. What that means is he's not looking at you first to work out if you're good enough before he saves you. If he saved Jacob, if he decided Jacob and Esau when they were still in their mother's womb, it can't be that you're doing enough good works to be chosen by God. God sovereignly chooses us. Secondly, our God shows mercy and compassion. He saves those who don't deserve it. How good is that? Thirdly, our God took action to save us in his son. The God who loves us did everything possible on the cross to save us. So is God good? God is good. And the only reason we would not think he is if we're still thinking that he is unjust. Remember the next point. The next point is to do with us. 
What are we like? Well, this passage says that we are clay pots, clay pots, who can be loved and chosen. They're people who could be hardened and appointed to go away from God, and we are all people who can hear the gospel, the good news. People can be chosen for good or to go away, but all of us can hear the gospel. We want to, are you still assuming that we're good and deserving? In essence, the reason that we might reject that is if we think, hang on, how could God do this to me would only be if we're forgetting that we are fallen people. The third thing I want us to think about is this idea of predestination means that God chooses us. God chooses us. And if we don't like this doctrine, there's two choices before us. We can either say this is wrong or this is a point for us to worship God. If we're going to say it's wrong, I'd like to hear this. I didn't rip it. It's okay, it's good, see? Didn't. But you can start ripping pages out of your Bible. So if you don't like the doctrine of predestination, start ripping pages out of your Bible. Get your own Bible and do it. The ones at church still believe in predestination. That's okay. But you would start ripping pages out of your Bible if you didn't believe this. Because you have now put yourself in the place where you will decide what is acceptable for God to tell us. This is hard stuff, right? I don't think it's easy. But if you reject this, you're essentially saying, I don't like chapter 9, that's out. And here's what I'd say to you. You'll leave yourself with a very small Bible if you only put up with the things that suit you. If you don't like this doctrine, you can start ripping. If you do, can I encourage you to start looking? Let me tell you why. Uh, There's a thing called a fish finder. Do you know what a fish finder is? It's a little sonar thing. You know, you go fishing these days, it's not just a matter of chucking a line in. You can actually see where the fish are under the water. Very cool, right? It exists. And so here's the thing. When you go fishing now, you and I, spiritually fishing, can know that there are people out there who God's chosen. Why? Because we're told that there are elect people. There are chosen people. There are people who predestined. And they're not here tonight, are they? Well, not all of them. So how will I find the fish that God's still to have us catch? How will I do it? I'll keep chucking the gospel out. And I'll find the fish that God's prepared before all eternity when they say what? Yes to Jesus. How will I find the ones whose God's predestined? Keep asking people if I trust Jesus. Beep, 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 beep. There they are. They'll show that they're the ones that God has chosen when they say yes to Jesus. So I reckon if you believe in this, you'll start talking to people about Jesus because you'll go looking for the ones he's predestined. That's pretty good. And if you say, I'm going to ignore what I heard at church tonight, then I'll encourage you to begin repenting now and we can have confession next week. How does that sound? All right. Here's the, there's three questions I think that naturally follow. Question number one, what about me? So if you hear that God predestines people, the first thing we think is crikey, because we're always thinking about ourselves, aren't we? Crikey, am I predestined? Well, the answer is, Respond in faith today. If you're not sure, trust Jesus today. What will that reveal? You're predestined. So if you're wondering, am I predestined? Choose Jesus. Secondly, if you've already chosen Jesus, persevere with confidence. God chose you and he will see you to glory. How good is that? Number two, I'm worried about them. It's great to hear that God's in charge, but now I'm worried about my friend. Now I'm worried about my family. Now I'm worried about my work colleague. Yes? What about them? What do I do about them? Well, if that's the case, then the first thing I will do is I'll give the message of new life to find out if they're elect. 
Are you with me? I'm worried about them. I'm going to ask them to trust in Jesus. And if they say no the first time, I'll keep asking. And I'm going to pray that God will have mercy on them because he's the one who has mercy. The third thing is just our general, but how can this work? Yes? How can this work? Don't I choose God? But it says here that God chooses me. And I'd say, yep, both are true. You can ask me some more in question time. But both are true at the same time. And because they're both true, then how do I live in light of the fact that I'm predestined? Trust and obey Jesus, just as you always have. Okay, here's where we finish up. The ultimate landing point of this is who will be the king in salvation? Are we choosing God or is he choosing us? This passage says God is choosing us. That's really encouraging. It means that it's all by grace. I'm going to finish with this picture of empty seats and a line that we sing in a song we're singing at the moment, in my father's house there are many rooms. Why would there be many rooms in my father's house if predestination is true? Because there's lots of space for people he's yet to call. Isn't that encouraging? When I go to, Car- when I go to Carol's, I'm going to look out there and think, there are many, many here who are yet to be saved. Unfortunately, there are a few seats here as well as in heaven. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you're good. Thank you that you choose us. Thank you that you have saved us graciously through your Son. Lord, have mercy. Help us to trust this amazing doctrine of predestination for our encouragement, both personally, that we'll see you one day face to face, and for evangelism, that we'll take the good news of Jesus out. We ask it in his name. Amen. Okay. That's some things about some things. Uh, Are there any questions that naturally arise from having talked to you about predestination? Yes, Phoebe. Oh, sorry, Rachel. Oh, do you know what? Hi, Rachel. That's a great question. Why does God save people who do bad things? Is that right? Okay, why does he? If he didn't save people who do bad things, nobody would be saved, including you and me. Are you with me? So you and I do bad things. Would that be fair? And if God only saved the good people, guess who wouldn't be saved? Your pastor and probably you and maybe a few others here. Is that okay? It's actually a, it's actually a really good but confusing truth that bad people go to heaven. Because of the grace of God. Thank you. That's a great question. Great start. Thank you. Someone else got a question? Yes, go, Peter. I love that question because it means you've been paying very close attention, Peter, or that you've spent a lifetime thinking about this prior. One of those two. Uh, here's the thing. Uh, I want a whiteboard, but I don't have one. Kara's shaking her head and saying, don't get a whiteboard. Okay. Here's... Uh, imagine a whiteboard here, okay? I'm drawing a line across the middle of it. Up, up the top of the line, I'm going to write God. Below the line, I'm going to write me. Up here, I'm going to write the word elect or predestination. God is in the business of choosing and electing people. Down here in the world where I live, draw an earth, put a little person on top of it. Down here in the world where I live, I live in a world of chaotic choices. Today... A little hole has been torn in this line. 
And I got to look up and see God is running the universe as the sovereign king who predestines everyone. But in my world, tomorrow when I wake up, I don't get to know what I'm predestined to do, do I? You don't know what you're predestined to do. We don't functionally know every day what God is choosing us to do. So here's the thing. I would say there are two truths happening at the same time. And this is why your question is very smart. Okay, it's a great question. When God offers us salvation, is he genuine? I think that was your question. Now, I think the answer to that is yes and no. It's absolutely genuine because God will only ever be genuine. It's no if we use the logic of some people must not be saved, so there's something else going on there. But here's the, here's the practical reason. The practical reason it's genuine is I don't know whether I'm predestined or not, and everyone sitting here doesn't either, so they hear the offer and they choose to reject it or accept it. And that's the basis on which they'll be judged. It happens to be that predestination is happening at another level, but I am, Pharaoh hardened his heart. And it says, God hardened his heart. Both are true at the same time. Is it a genuine offer? I think it's genuine, and I think we genuinely reject it, and we genuinely accept it. Does that make sense? Come back at me. Yes. Of course you can. Go. Yes. Again, it's a very good question. I think the only possible answer to that is yes, because God has chosen the number who will be saved, and he will only ever work for his glory. And so the answer, the number who will be saved, must be the point that maximizes the glory of God. So that's true. But here's the thing. I think when we hear the the idea uh, that some are saved and some are not, this is just natural the way we work as human beings. There is an irresistible gravity. It's like the not becomes a black hole that sucks all of our attention towards it, doesn't it, people? Right? As soon as you're told there are some who will not be saved, my focus is just drawn across to the not side. We don't actually rejoice in the fact that some will be saved, which is the miracle. And on top of that, we actually don't know how big the number who won't be saved is. Do you know what I mean? We just assume it's everyone, don't we? There's a beautiful line from, I think it's from Karl Barth. He says, uh, he hopes and prays that hell is empty. Don't we? As a church, our vision is to see new life in Jesus come to every home. I don't want to presume, because I'm not God, the number of people he'll save. And so I want to work my tail off with you to prayerfully invite the rest of our suburb and the world to respond to the mercy of Jesus. Does that make sense? Awesome. More of a statement than a question. Oh, state away, Alec. But God has already chosen, going back to the Old Testament, going back to Deuteronomy, God's already chosen the people of Israel, yet Moses has to stand in front of them and say, um, I'm putting for you before you life and death, so choose life. So they're already chosen, and yet they have to choose. So there's a bit of that going on with what Paul's saying, I think. Both end. Yeah. That's great. Yeah, no, good example. Yeah, no, thank you. Yes, question. Well, as a <laughs> Go for it. <laughs> um, if I think about predestination and the fact that if you think about the um, 
he's the potter and we are the clay and he sets some aside for noble purposes and, and yeah. some for not. But that could still be based on the fact that he already knows how we're going to respond. So it's not that he's gone, I've made you and I'm not going to save you. Like it's he, he knows how we're going to respond anyway. Then he uses us how he chooses, which makes it less horrible. Yeah, I don't know. That's Thank you. Uh, so the idea we're talking about here is foreknowledge. Does God foreknow what we're going to sovereignly, what we're going to individually choose, and thus his election is a response to our choice? I think that's kind of the logic, isn't it? So we kind of, he knows the future, and then he backdates the outcome based on what our decision is. I think that has a lot of appeal to it, um, and I'll talk to you at supper why I think it fails ultimately, I think. Uh, On the basis that my choices are only ever an outcome of prior things that make me who I am, and since God sovereignly rules everything, even those things he would know and understand that would lead me to the choice. And so in the end, I'm not convinced that it totally unpicks the, the question of does God sovereignly choose? I better stop now because now I'm getting glazed over looks. But here's the thing, here's the thing. We've worked hard tonight. I want you to walk away with something's clear. God chooses should be an article of encouragement for us not discouragement. That's what it should be. When we get confused about it, turn it to prayer, turn it to prayer, and go fishing to find the elect because they're out there. Are you with me? Praise God. I'm going to stop. Which I think just comes to me, doesn't it? Yep, does. Right. Okay, great. Uh, why don't we get our Caring Connect cards out and you can write down the questions you didn't ask uh, that you would like me to get back to you. I'll write an email to everyone who asked a question on the card. So if you want to write a question, I'll come back to you that way.